Hey, it's Tobias here. If you want to learn a little bit about my firm or see my portfolio, head on over to acquirersfunds.com. Here we go. Yeah. I think it's going to work now. Hey, I got a notification. Me too. That's a bit odd. Nice. Right. I think we're live. Dang, on time? We what? may even be in a fraction. Yeah, we're on time. I don't 10 like this, man. I don't like this. We're training people to expect stuff. <laughs> this is terrible. Competence. Oh. Training people to expect it's that's a bad move right there. Yeah, it's terrible. <laughs> You're setting the bar way too high. Well, it's don't worry, fellas. folks. We'll let you down next week. Well, you know, inconsistency is the name of the game here. My man, like value returns. <laughs> oh my god, value returns. That's like that's a horror <laughs> movie right there. That's what it would be called. Value returns. This- this right there is the dip that gets people thinking that our value show will actually come on time all the time. And then next week we'll rip their face off. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah 1045 AM won't even be going yet. What's going on? Not much is going on. I spent the weekend in Boston. When's the last time you heard somebody fly from Florida to Boston and then have to change their flight back to avoid a hurricane? Mm. Not often. Yeah. And usually going the other way, right? That's right. Rough morning for this guy uh, Sunday. Just Three hurricanes kids. following you around, huh? Yeah, dude. Yeah. And then I come back here to COVID land. People are fucking out of their minds. Oh, well. Anyway, I digress. You asked me. I told you. We do some shout outs for some people because I haven't done that for a little while. Oakville, Ontario, Canada. How are you? Oh, Cam- yeah. Geographies. Camus. What's happening? Camus, did I say that correctly? Uh. Camus. Everybody's here for the. Uh, no, it's not. It's not spelled that way. Should we do the uh, the throwback intro? Welcome to Value After Hours. I'm your host, yeah. Bill Brewster, with my co-host Tobias Carlisle and the esteemed Jake Taylor. Ooh. What's going on today, guys? What's your topic, Toby? Yeah, I had a chat to a gentleman who's recently written a new uh, book, William Silver. It's called The Power of Nothing to Lose, but it's basically about hail marys when people throw them, why people throw them in football and uh, outside of that. And uh, I think that there's some interesting kind of ideas that come out of it, some, uh, particularly in relation to the stuff that I've been writing about and working on. So that's going to be my topic. JT, what's up? I'm feeling good. I got a new microphone set up so everyone can stop complaining about me being too quiet. So I'm fe- that's hopefully is going to be a, a game changer. And I've got a... I've got a little topic prepared that I'm titling "Social Thermodynamic Equilibrium," so we're we're gonna get wow. we're gonna get into it. I think it's, it's probably a two-parter. So <laughs> I did not expect that from a helicopter pilot. I gotta say, yeah, <laughs> there's layers to the shit, player. <laughs> I got a couple. We got Wenatchee, Please. Woodenville. Belgium, Orlando, Las Vegas, Toronto, Utah, baby. What's happening? New Jersey, Nashville. Everybody's in the house. This is Shout good. out to Orlando. Don't drink too much water. They need it for the uh, COVID treatments, according to the news. Uh, true story. True story. That's what they said. They said conserve water because they need it. Um, I will not be doing something nearly as smart as Jake. I will riff off of Toby's topic and probably talk about supply chains a bit. All right. You want to start it out, Jake? All right. We can eat veggies first. Why don't we kick it off with, uh, because we're going to do two. We're going to do you and I. And then uh, I I, I want people to listen to the end. After, man. JT JT puts in the work. Yeah, that's fair. I want people to hang around for the good part. Yeah, let's go ahead. So the the podcast that I have up at the moment is William Silber. He's he's written, he's a, I think he was a New York NYU uh, professor of finance, and he's written a book um, on the Hail Mary effect, which is basically like when, and his definition of a Hail Mary is when you have nothing to lose, then you take a high risk gamble that, you know, typically doesn't pay off, but because you, you've already, you, you've got nothing to lose, then it can pay off. And he gives lots of different examples of Aaron Rodgers can be pretty, re- it reliably throws this deep bomb if they're behind if the Packers are behind um, and everybody knows that, you know, it's basically, it's a goat rodeo. Like there's a chance he catches, there's a chance it connects, there's a chance it doesn't connect. And that's the idea of the Hail Mary. I've, everybody's pretty familiar with the Hail Mary, but it, it turns up in lots of different contexts. So 
anytime you have nothing to lose, you take this. It makes sense to buy the lottery ticket. And I, uh, I kind of, uh, I, I slightly disagree with uh, William. I put this to put this to Bill. I should say, we're good friends now. So I slightly, I put this to Bill on the uh, on the podcast that um, that sort of that beha- that behaviour is sort of the thing that it's just, that's just lottery ticket buying behaviour. And many many times, our instinct is to buy the lottery ticket anyway, and you kind of have to suppress the instinct to buy the lottery ticket and to buy the the sure option. But, you know, according to the definition of his book, within that, there are certain circumstances under which you can throw. And so Aaron Rodgers throwing at the end of the game, if the game is lost, but if you connect and you get a touchdown and you can win, then it makes perfect sense. And I I think about it in the context of um, this book that I'm writing at the moment on grand strategy on Sun Tzu. One of the things that they say is that, you should put yourself on, they describe it as death ground, which is there's basically there's no way out and you perish if you don't fight hard on that ground. And then that's the, the circumstances when you're likely to, uh, to actually fight hard enough to win. And there, there are, the reverse of that advice is also true. There are, there are points in time when you should observe the fact that the other side is on death ground and that if you attack them in that place, then they're going to respond and fight incredibly hard and that you're likely to lose uh, a large portion of your force. So the better idea is to, when someone's on death ground, allow them to escape, give them, give them an escape route. So uh, it changes their payoff from, you know, uh, no downside to, and now we have some downside, we can get away. So I just think it's an interesting, there are many examples of financial ideas crossing over into real life. And, and back and forth. And I, I think that a good understanding of um, your own behavior and the risk reward payoff of any scenario helps you to better uh, think through the likely outcome of these positions. So I, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a, I think that for the most part, you shouldn't throw the Hail Mary, but uh, we were just before we came on, we were talking about somebody who's got a portfolio filled with Hail Marys. <laughs> Can we can we uh, circle back to this idea of letting them off a death ground? Yeah. So the concept is is if they're on death ground, they will fight like they have nothing to lose because they have nothing to lose. Yeah, because they're dead, right? They're on well, death you, ground. You, yeah, you will. You will yeah. die. You have a higher position or whatever. It's not, it's not, <clears throat> go, not ghosts. Fighting. So, <laughs> but so, ghosts. so if you give them an out, is the idea that they'll retreat to save their life? And that yep. you'll be able to take the position anyway. Is that is that the theory that they're talking about? It, the idea is that you just need to be you need to have uh, an overview of what all of the all of the um, the things at play in what you're doing. So you need to understand the the disposition of the other side or, you know, I, I, I don't, I don't necessarily think in investing that there really is another side. I'm just saying you need to understand the disposition of the market. You need to understand the disposition of uh, other shareholders in a company management and so on. So there are, I think you, you, in many instances, you can find uh, a management team on death ground and you might want to back those guys um, because I think that they're probably going to fight hard to get out of that scenario. So that's just I, I'm 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 spitballing a little bit here, but that's kind of the idea that you just need to be aware of all of the influences, or you know, you need to be a little bit aware of the unseen forces in any kind of engagement. And one of them is that they have no they have no alternative, and when they have no alternative, that they're going to fight a lot harder than you might perceive that they should, given uh, the the things that you can see. This is going to be my second week in a row plugging non-gap. So soon you're going to have to pay us non-gap. But when he did his Regeneron write-up and those guys brought forward, I think it was like five years of pay. And he was like, this is a good sign. Uh, I think that stock's up like 150 bucks on a $500 stock within, I don't know, maybe whenever he and I recorded our episode. So it's, it's definitely been under a year. Um, I, I think proxies are probably a good good idea to search to see when management teams are putting themselves on death ground. Would you say that this actually applies even more to a short situation, especially if you think there's fraud? Where I mean, there 
they're effectively on that death ground, right? Like they're trying to, they're going to do anything that they can to keep it going. And you have to yeah, maybe know that going in. Yeah, that's a very good example that uh, is now going to appear in the book. Thanks, Jake. I just prefer to, to not engage in that situation. I've, I've seen that take too much uh, brain damage in people's lives to short that, right? Short frauds, oh, yeah, for sure. But it also depends on the size, right? You don't want to be. I, I think it's hard to be the lead short identifying all of the problems with something and then take a big short position in your fund. Like in that case, you're, you're so close to it. And, you know, te- we've all seen what Tesla's done to everybody for the last like five years. It's, it's th- I think that the shorts are probably right. Like, no kidding. I, I, I have been one of them on occasion, but, um, you just get too close to it and you can't see all of the other factors at play. Yeah. I'd rather be wrong and rich than short and right and, and poor, which is what some of those shorts are. If they didn't manage risk. Well, right. you can be, you can be right in, <clears throat> you can be right in the fullness of time, but because you've got the path dependency, you're wrong in the interim and you can be carried out feet first, which That's is right. why you want to keep them small. Which is all that matters. Yeah, I'm not. Surviving. I'm not saying you. I'm saying like I, I. I know very vocal shorts, and it's hard to argue that they've been right. Because just because if something goes up five x on you in a short, it's just very, very hard to argue that. That at, at a minimum, the timing was off. Oh shit! There's two Jakes. Jakes, Jakes in here twice. I don't know what's happening. Okay. There's Dreamy Jake and Frozen Jake. <laughs> That's what I'm looking at, at least. <clears throat> All right. Well, I guess you and I are doing the pod today, huh? Well, let's let's talk about the other. Let's talk about the other. Um, filling a portfolio with full of hail marys. I mean, well, that's, I don't <clears throat> mind that as a strategy for the most part. I don't, I don't know that you would fill the portfolio. I guess. I, I guess the conversation that I was having today that was um, was making me think of hail marys is, I think like there's, I think that there's room in a portfolio for some hail marys. I sort of go back and forth on this. Like, do you want to dilute your best ideas? Um, But like from a, how would you want to manage your life standpoint? I think that like, once you get to a certain level of comfort, there's sort of a portfolio that is safe and you're not risking your life comfort. And if it underperforms a little bit, you probably deserve it because it's probably not as risky as the market. But then if you can find some like really spicy stuff to throw into it, um, as a Hail Mary, that makes sense to me. It's just, you got to size it right. And it's really got to have the potential to hit. Maybe you don't want to do it. Like I would get that too. I don't, Buffett would definitely not agree with what I just said. You bet you back JT has your mic. Hopefully it's okay. (laughs) Well, but, but Buffett's Buffett's one of those guys who's like, there's that William T. Ziemba has written that, uh, paper about Buffett saying that he's been a Kelly Bitten investor the whole way through. And we saw that in 2000. A what? A Kelly Bitten investor. Oh, yeah. We saw that in uh, 2018 or nine. When, when did he like really plow into Apple? But that wasn't, I mean, it. that's not really a Hail Mary for him. It's, no, it's not a Hail Mary. That's right. But I, I, I no. slightly, I'm just talking about what you were just talking about. Then I, I thought... Uh, yeah, I guess that's right. Yeah, I think you're right. Okay, I understand. I'm, I'm sorry to not make that a connection on my own topic. That's not a Hail Mary, I guess. <laughs> yeah. I, I, I've always thought of him as the opposite of a Hail Mary investor. I, I think that people yes. would maybe look at his position sizes and say they're Hail Marys, but I don't think he has much downside. I think, he, I think that's right. I think that that's, I think that that's exactly right. That's why I think that this the book is like the inverse of the one that I'm trying to write, which is basically don't throw how Mary's you don't need to. Yeah. I, I just think that there are different people that have different capabilities. That said, uh, I would rather have a quarterback like Tom Brady than one like Jay Cutler. Right. And Jay Cutler was like a hail Mary guy that lost all the time. Brady's like a, you know, not a dink and dunker, but he doesn't have some cannon on him. He's just accurate. And he, he like, you know, wins. That's who you want. Do you think that there's um, maybe some career implications when it comes to Hail Marys? Like, should you be throwing Hail Marys when you're young and you don't have as much to lose? 
Yeah. And you're an anonymous account and you can just <laughs> fold it and do another. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Or a fund even. I mean, that's, uh, that's, it's, that's not uncommon to see somebody blow up a fund and then come back and start another one. Right. Here's the only problem with that behavior that part of the reason that I kind of am attracted to this subject and the reason that I have written the book is I know lots and lots of guys who've thrown Hail Marys, uh, you know, to start their careers. And throw, that's, we all know like people who take way too much risk, but within that group, I know lots and lots of guys who've connected and are now fabulously wealthy as a result. But within that group of guys who threw the Hail Mary and connected, there's a, like a, a material number of them just never gave up the behavior. They just kept on throwing the Hail Marys and they've gone back to square one. And that's the sort of thing that it's the, it's that pattern of behavior that I'm interested in studying and interested in avoiding. Yeah. But what if you think you're the exception to the base rate? (laughs) One in a million. What was all that one in a million talk? (laughs) But that, that first part, (laughs) that first part, where you throw the Hail Mary, like, I don't think, I think you're right. Like when you're young, it does make sense to throw some Hail Marys, but uh, when you connect, you got to change your, you got to change your approach. You got to go to a, uh, you got to, you, you've made the, the leap across the fiery chasm. Now you're, just, you gotta, you're just handing it off three times in a row and then punting. I, why not? That's the value strategy. Yeah. And then playing the prevent defense. Um, you know, I guess, I guess as it pertains to investments, uh, I think a strategy of a lot of Hail Marys can work. I just don't think yeah. that you can size them big. So then maybe it, maybe it's not even a Hail Mary. Maybe it's just like a deep pass in the first quarter. Yeah, I think that that's right. Like a strategy, f- a, a, but you could, you could clearly, you could run a book that way, right? Where you've got... You, Trying whatever, to hit, hit hits, right? You've got a one in 10 chance of you know whatever I, I i haven't done these calculations but i'll go and work it out what it actually let's go means. 40x because that i think our math will work if you got a one in ten chance of a 40x that's yeah. that you should lay but then how many positions should you have in your portfolio to sort of reliably guarantee returns or not yeah not guarantee but reliably generate returns yeah i mean you need the expected value to be in excess of one right so i need to getting- i need to actually look at a paper and do this math a one in 10 chance of a 20x is a positive expected return bet correct like if, if you have one of those you got a one in 10 chance of it paying off like do you need you need some number of them i don't know what it is 10 20 to sort of yeah you uh, would think 10 right but then want, you gotta I but wanna, then I how correlated are they and how different are they and like do you have you know it's got to be truly non-correlated bets in order for this theory to work uh, I'm not hard sure to find how those. many of those exist anymore. Feels like the there's a lot of correlated bets these days. You could have you could have little special situations though, right? Where yeah, and you could you could do it with an option, which you, you know really you could you could shape that payoff. You really could find those payoffs if you're hunting for them hard enough, and then fill up a portfolio. Someone in Victor has made the point that like that's lots of Hail Marys in a portfolio. That's like a VC portfolio, right? That's, that's kind of what I mean, like maybe even more aggressive than a VC portfolio where they, they um, explicitly say, well, there's going to be a small portion of our portfolio is going to hit, but the hit's going to be so big, it's going to take care of everything else. Yeah. I mean, this is the David Gardner philosophy, I think. And then you let it run and then you add to the ones that are working. Yeah, I, I kind of think that the... Is that like going yeah. for two after you I score the touchdown? Well, <clears throat> I think, I think, and I don't want to speak for him. My interpretation of why I say that is uh, if you think that the market someday can be 20X, uh, like let's say that you think a stock can 20X or whatever. When that thesis begins to get proven, forget about whether or not the stock works, but when the business starts to work and the stock works, you're sort of like, if you're, if you're already right, uh, I think you want to average up into those situations and bet those hard because that's probably the situation that you see clearly um, in that strategy. Uh, I, I remember Peter Thiel talking about this quite a while ago, and he said that He's pr- almost always re-upped, invested in an up round because it meant something was working and you just kind of keep backing what's working. Yeah. That's slightly different to a public 
market's positioned the right way. Let's just say that there's a random walk and you put on enough, <laughs> let's, let's say, like for, for argument's sake, and you put on, you've, you've done all of your work on 10 positions and half work and half don't. Why would you size up into the ones that are working given that like we're just talking randomness over the next two or three yeah, years? Yeah, but I don't buy that it's actually random. That's the problem. And you have actually, you you are fundamentally- There's a, there's like, a Nobel Prize in that. Maybe yeah, if you can get hey, that paper out. Hey, Bert, what are you talking about? <laughs> well, I, I mean, I don't. I think they're wrong. Uh, I think that I think that companies that have cultures that compound value over time, I, I mean, generate, uh, you know, huge returns. Right. And like, I, I think we'd all agree that like a lot of the market's returns are out of a very few amount of companies. So if you're identifying that company with that culture, uh, I, I don't think it's that random over a long term. But you could find an X. So this, I saw this lots of times from 2005 to 2015. There were lots of very, very good companies that had just traded so expensive. Like they can't control their stock price. And you're looking at the underlying company saying, this is a spectacular company. This is a spectacular business growing and compounding all the time. Management's executing. Stock just hasn't done anything. You know, you could hold that for a couple of years and be backwards 50%. And I don't think you've necessarily made a mistake other than you might've overpaid for it. Yeah, I don't think so either. But I, I do feel like sometimes when people talk about stocks, it's like you've got, you know, uh, I, I'm trying to think of like a good um, analogy that people would understand. But it, it's basically like you've got a young Tom Brady and he's winning Super Bowls and people are like, well, how do you know he can continue to win? And how can you pay him more? Like, shouldn't you just go sign some shitty quarterback because of mean reversion? And it's like, no, you dumb shit. You just continue to bet on the guy that's really good. Like, and I don't think business is that different. Like, I do fundamentally believe that there are teams of people that kick other people's ass in competition, and business is the same. Now, I agree that there are competitive forces that, you know, in a perfect theoretical world are competed away. The problem is, like, we don't live in theory, and talent wants to join talent. Okay. And, like, I just, that's what I, that's like what I believe about the world. Uh, and then I think that like, we're at a point where we've, we have entered an economy, whether it's regulatory capture or companies have gotten so big or scale advantages or whatever. The internet probably. Well, but maybe. Distribution I mean, network. Hey, thanks. Thanks for modern distressed investing. Is that Thomas Brazil? I can't, I can't quite see the picture of it. We, we just got a tip. We got a 20 pound tip. Thanks, mate. Nice. Thanks for the tip. Um, you know, I don't know. I just kind of. I, I do think that the people underweight that and then they're like, well, theoretically, shouldn't this not be true? And it's like, yeah, in theory, but the problem is you don't get paid on theory. Academics I'm with you, do. But, but you're missing my point. I'm with you that there are underlying, that there are management teams and businesses that are superior and that grow and compound over time. I think that the wrinkle is though, that in the market, we're all trying to handicap at the, at the, at the price that you offered. Is this now fully accounting for how good these guys are? Or I even overestimating how point. good those guys are. I, I do get it. And I, and I think what I'm saying is that I think too often, uh, I, I think a lot of the times those companies are underestimated perpetually. You're trying to avoid that Bobby Bonilla contract. <laughs> yeah. And, and like, yes, there are some times, uh, obviously, I mean, look, I think if you look at my portfolio, it's not like I'm making huge bets on these great companies, but um you know, how long has Google been undervalued for and how long would people have said, well, it's too expensive. And it's like, you're wrong. You know, Google's been cheap on occasion. I get it, but you probably could have bought it expensive and still outperformed if you bought it small enough is my point. I'm sure. Yeah. So you're just saying to put a startup position in when it goes backwards, buy a little bit more. Yeah, I think that's but, strategy. But isn't that literally what I just said before? Isn't that I what I said? I don't like, even know what we're talking about anymore. We're talking about pyramiding up into a position. So I can I can give you an I can give you a, a real I mean I can give you a, an example of what when I mean like a Hail Mary portfolio would be I think you could put together a portfolio full of uh, call options on you know let's let's pick all of the names that we really like let's assume that they're all let's let's find them when they're reasonably valued and then buy you know an at the money or slightly out of the money call a leap that goes for two years now that portfolio should generate very high returns. But there's also a risk that if you get a big enough drawdown in the market that you're a donut on that entire portfolio. Yeah. 
The problem with options is you have an asset liability mismatch in my mind, and it's not actually asset liability mismatch, but you're putting an artificially short duration on an inherently yeah. long duration bet and yeah. you can get fucked. 100%. So that's, that's where I do think like a two-year time horizon, the market's probably pretty random. A day time horizon for sure. Five, that's why, 10 years, why you know. need to only trade options that expire within a week or less. That's the. <laughs> I like that. I, I, you know, you can actually make a, a decent argument that short-term options on some of this crazy stuff makes more sense than the underlying for some of that reason. Make it. I just think once you bet in a lottery, you might as well bet the lottery. Yeah. Don't take that lump sum. Don't go for it. <laughs> there ain't no such thing as halfway crooks. But I can, I, I mean, I think that you can get with a leap going at two years or more. You can, and on a, on something cheap, like you, you're, you're, you've you've transformed transformed a portfolio that would be, you know, just a regular value portfolio that has no downside other than like the equity downside, into uh, a portfolio that has a much higher expected return, but also has the risk of. A complete donut, and that's what I mean by like that's a, that's a that's a portfolio filled with hail marys. Yeah, but even you're you must dream a little bigger, darling. There are <laughs> you're already you're already caving like pushing it back into leaps when you could go even crazier if you really. But want I'm to increasing my. You don't think I'm increasing my expected like the the chance that I get paid off in that scenario? Yeah, but you're also lowering what you're going to get paid. All I know is I got 514 days to get paid on these LT sleeps. <laughs> and they've Which created ones? quit in my retirement account. LP, LP oh, sleeps. The poor. No, Altis. That, that poor oh, gal. Altis. Yeah. <laughs> She's a volatile lady. <laughs> just a, just abusing that, that IRA. <laughs> yeah. I think uh, I'll tell you what it wishes this trade wasn't on. That's fine. Whatever. Get it back. <laughs> All right. Have we have we beaten this uh, this topic to death? JT, you want to redeem us? Yeah, let's let's get into it. Um, so, social thermodynamic equilibrium. If you can stomach that mouthful, and of course, like any good thermodynamics uh, segment, it's going to start off with Ludwig Boltzmann, who is this Austrian, of course, of course, Austrian physicist. He. Um, He's the one who used statistical uh, mechanics really to explain the second law of thermodynamics. So, you know, the, and really what that, that, that if refresher on what the second law of thermodynamics is, is basically it's in an isolated system as entropy has to increase. So basically like you arrive at, at some equilibrium, like which um, if taken far enough, you start to get talk about like the heat death of the universe and whatever cheery topics. Now we're going to keep going there, but there's this other guy, uh, also an Austrian physicist type of fellow who named uh, Lo Schmidt. And he calculated in the, in the 19th century, the number of molecules in one cubic centimeter at zero degrees centigrade and one atmospheric pressure. So like basically, you know, if we just had one little cubic centimeter, how many molecules are inside of there? And it turns out that it's an insane number. It's 2.687 times 10 to the 19th molecules. So just to give a little bit of perspective of what that would equate to, in 450 cubic centimeters, which is basically a little under a half a liter. So just think about like, you know, a two liter bottle of soda and a little under half of that just filled with air. There are more molecules in there than there are stars in the universe. So there's, there's a fair number of molecules in the air that we breathe. Um, and what's crazy is that they're all moving around at 460 meters per second, which, uh, which doesn't mean much to us, but is more like uh, it's over a thousand miles per hour is how fast they're moving. Um, so, you know, Boltzmann's equation, it used, like, it described the properties of molecules and how they average out over time. And so a um, picture like a box and like you add air to it for the first time, it was a vacuum. There's going to be some particles in there that are or molecules that are moving faster than others. And what ends up happening is, and those faster ones are, are actually by definition, higher energy, which means that they're actually higher temperature. Um, 
So these faster moving molecules bump into the slower moving molecules and they give them a nudge. And in doing that, they transfer energy from one to the other. And so what, you know, if you can imagine, um, you know, it, as they share energy, they, they, what the higher energy one loses energy and the, the slower one gains energy to the point where you get equilibrium right within the system. And that's basically like what, what's happening in one definition of entropy. So you get this, uh, and it's, and it's obviously, it's a very swift process in, uh, you know, a, a little liter of air because those things are moving around and they have like 4 million collisions per second on average. So like, that's how, why we don't notice air temperatures being that much different within a little tiny box is because they're moving around so fast and sharing energy. So let's now take this whole concept of kind of sharing energy and running into each other and let's abstract it out into a social context of, you know, Jim Rohn has this quote that, that you're the average of the five people that you spend the most time with. And Tony Robbins has kind of taken that same quote and used it. And so think about that. Like you're the people that you, like the other molecules in the box with you that you run into on a regular basis, you share energy, you share values even. Um, and in part two, next week, we're going to start talking about memetics and Rene Girard and how like you start to actually share what, you, what they want. And like, you know, I don't know if you ever stop to ask yourself, like, why do I want what I want? Uh, it's, it's kind of actually a, a mind boggling question when you think about it. Um, so thoughts on that before I move into the next little like biology part of, of this segment. I think it's probably, it, that seems to be right, isn't it? I, I, I hate those pat things like you're the average of the five people that you spend the most time with. That's probably true. That's got to be true, right? So so why do you want the things that you want? Because because your friends want them. Well, this goes like actually quite deep. Um, and we'll, I want to do a, a very good job of it. And um, like, we'll, we'll carve out more That's time coming. for it. That's, That's going to be next week. Yeah, we're going to get into to memetics and why you want what you want. Um, so one thing though to to hit on before is is that there's this thing inside of you called the vagus nerve and what it is it's really like the super highway of your autonomic nervous system and that's the thing that just handles stuff while you're like below the subconscious level so your your heartbeat your lung uh, functionality digestion all the stuff that's happening kind of inside your body that you're not having to actually you know, actively think about is, is monitored mostly by this vagus nerve and the like 80% of the traffic on that vagus nerve is the brain sending signals out to tell your body, you know, what to do. And then the other, you know, your organs and your glands and all this, you know, machinery that you have inside of you. Then the other 20% is going the other direction, feeding sensory input back to the brain to figure out what, what things to do next. So, Vagus actually is Latin for wandering and what that, this nerve basically like system wanders all throughout your body. Um, and so there's this idea that you want to have good vagal tone, um, which means, uh, and I know you guys always like it when I, can you work that out? With yeah. With kettlebells? We, yeah, exactly. Um, but what that, um, so like literally the electrical impulses that are pulsing in your vagal nerve are, they get synced up with other people. Uh, and, you know, like that is one of the ways of developing vagal tone is to have a lot of social connections. So it's not just that like we have this, you know, you're, you're the average of the five people that you spend your time around, but there's almost like an electrical signal that is is analogous to our little molecules bouncing around in the box. Um, so I love it when we kind of go from, from like physical world to sort of social and then actually back to like the physical world. Um, and if I, if I'm able to execute this memetics piece well enough next week, I'm, I'm going to land memetics back into thermodynamics. We'll see. Uh, <laughs> so, so here's some other things in case you were wondering about how to improve vagal tone um, other than, uh, doing your Pilates or whatever it is, <laughs> um, cold exposure, frequent, oh. yeah. Frequent movement, obviously like being a couch potatoes, bad for your tone of anything. Um, intermittent fasting, 
omega threes. And then probably one of the biggest things is actually community. So back to that, uh, you know, average of who you spend your time around. So can anyway, you achieve it over a podcast? Uh, I don't know, have to actually go out into the community. So that's a good question. I don't, um, I've thought about this a fair amount actually, because I think it, it has important implications for kind of culture building. And uh, my hypothesis is that because so much communication is nonverbal um, and, you know, I mean, we can see each other now, but like how much of the total bandwidth of information about like our social interaction between the three of us right now, are we getting compared to if the three of us were in the same room? So obviously like we've lost pheromones. We don't have body language as much. Uh, we still have tone. We have the actual word choices. We've got a little bit of facial expressions, although it's probably relatively muted to like what we would pick up in person. I got to think that like that is a relatively low bandwidth way of sharing um, over Zoom or whatever it is that you're using relative to, to if we were in person together. So I'm not entirely convinced that there's not. It's not enough. It might not be enough, actually. Yeah, that's interesting. I saw, I saw a... Uh, I saw a um... Got to smell each other to really understand <laughs> each other. I saw a Netflix documentary on fungus. Uh, we're all basically just full of fungus and breathing in fungus all the time. And it changes the way we think about everything. So we're probably huh. missing out on that too. Huh? Yeah, I believe that. Just, just it's on Netflix. So it's like some, I don't know. I'll get the, I'll get the name for next week. I wasn't really paying attention, but <laughs> at the start, but I did start paying attention halfway through. Cause I was like, Oh, this is really interesting because, uh, we're descended from fungus. There's fungus all over the planet. The oldest living thing in the world is a fungus. If you didn't send that to me. Sounds right. Well, Sometimes I, people eat fungus. I haven't finished it yet. Uh, okay. All right. So let's wait for part two and see if we can get into memetics, which is a, a pretty interesting topic. I like that you're into memetics. I think you're going to do well with this. We'll see. It could be a total botched operation, but. And then you and Jim O'Shaughnessy are going to combine forces. And you're going to have like, like a the, Voltron of uh, bad analogies. No, no, it's going to be, it's going to be like, uh, it's going to be like Finn Twit's ultimate meme. Oof, it's going to be beautiful. That'd be sweet. So I, I, I think that you probably are an average of the five people who you spend the most time with. And that's probably also true in a professional context. So what does that mean for investors? I yeah. don't know. I think spend means... time with people who are throwing Hail Marys. No, I, th I mean, look, I'll tell you what my takeaway is be very wary of hanging out with five people that think exactly the same as you. I mean, I, I, I think I, I actively try to talk to people that think very, very differently and I don't always agree with them, but you know, like, I, I mean, you know, I can't. Fantastic fungi. Thank you. Oof. I can't stop talking about them, but like David Gardner, the reason I'm obsessed with like that way of thinking is it's just so different. And like when I read it, it made me angry because it's so not what Buffett teaches. And I was like, but this is the canon I believe in. How can, how can somebody else say something so disgraceful as you should buy expensive stocks? Like, fuck you, man. But then I started to actually listen to what he said. And I said, all right, you know what? There's like, it's it's a different strategy right it's as if um a uh like the 80 whatever like the like the old school bears teams right that would like beat you up on defense and run you down and like the line was badass and then all of a sudden somebody's throwing like you know passes 50 times a game and it's like but this isn't how you play football but it turns out that you can play football that way and they're just sort of different views of the world and i think that um you know, I'm just trying to marry some different views of the world together and come up with a melting pot. Yeah, I think that's really smart, actually, because you're the let's you know, you get a tiny, tiny little sliver of perception into everything that's happening around you, especially conscious perception. And then you call that reality. Right. And then you think that you have some sort of like domain over what reality looks like. But 
you know, maybe someone else's perception is just a tilted a little bit differently. And because we're all sampling such small, low resolution versions of actual reality, it's not surprising that, that there's lots of, uh, lots of different truths that could, that seem contradictory, but don't necessarily have to be, uh, almost like that, you know, touching the elephant in different places. And then people, you know, assuming that it's a different thing. It's just, it's because we have such limited perception bandwidth that of course you're going to have people with different views that are, can be totally diametrically opposed and yet still right. Both of them. Yeah. What, what, what is it about David, uh, David Gardner's strategy that's so distinct from what Buffett does. Cause Buffett, I think that David Gardner has a lot. Dude, Gardner wants to buy the highest price stocks in the market for the most part. Like his theory of the case is uh, great companies never trade at multiples that people say make sense. So he gets really interested when somebody says like that stock is priced like absurdly high. He's like, all right, I, I want, I'm interested in that stock. And then On he's the basis looking. that the market has priced this thing so high because the underlying fundamentals are going to grow so rapidly, it's such a good. So he's saying this is a signal to go and have a look. Yeah, and to be fair to like to be very fair to him, he's a fundamental guy. Like he is, he's all about company and strategy and culture. Like that, I think, is accurate to say permeates the Motley Fool, uh, the way they talk about things. But um, I think his theory of the case is for truly great companies, the market is never able to actually uh, model them as bullishly as they're going to be in part because of career risk. Because if you're a sell-sider and you're like, I actually think this is going to be this way. And then it comes out and it's a little bit flat. Like you look like an idiot. Um, Arc begs to differ. It would be really nice to be able to have the conversation with this guy so I can ask these questions, but they have some stupid rule and he's supposed to be the rule breaker, but he won't break the rule. So I don't know. <laughs> not going to break that rule. Yeah. Isn't he reti- is he retired or stepping back or he's just not writing the thing anymore? How's it- I don't know. I'm so tired of even wanting the conversation that it may never even happen. It's a shame. Is there a poor man's version out there you can get to instead? Well, I'm not going to call it a poor man's, but I interviewed Brian Feraldi, and I think Brian has a really interesting outlook at the world that somewhat rhymes. You, you know what we've forgotten to talk about, and that's uh, Michael Burry uh, being short arc. Oh, yeah. Mm. Michael Burry is short arc, just in case everybody well, there you go. Know. Probably everybody knows. <laughs> He's also super long shipping and uh, a couple cyclicals. Burry doesn't spend enough time on Fintwit. I don't think he no. knows what he's doing. Well, he did. Following zero. <laughs> he did, and then and then he stopped. Uh, rest in peace to Michael Burry's old account. But then he came back, didn't he? For like a week, I think, and then it was gone again. Rest in peace to the second account. Did he come back again? I don't know. It's like a I, cat. I kind of lost interest after that. A fin cat. It's a little bit hard to stay off Twitter. You know, you can you can limit your exposure to it, but and you can delete it all off your phone. But you, you're a junkie. You're going to find your way back. You just got to, you just, you got to do it. You got to do it in a, in a, in a different account with a different, you just don't put your name on the account. That's probably the smartest way to do it. Yeah. He's probably some anon. He's just like trolling people. Um, I don't, yeah, I don't know. I mean, look, it'll work or it won't it'll be interesting. The, the, uh, I'm more interested in long, the shipping companies than I am short arc. Um, simply because there is so much tension in the supply chain right now. I mean, if you like, do yourself a favor and just drive through some car dealers, like pass some lots and take a look at the empty space versus the cars in there. And like the more do read builders first source, DR Horton toll brothers. I I sound like Mike now, but uh, imagine this, like we talk the amount of what is apparent demand versus the labor that is supplied to fulfill that demand. Like there's just shortages everywhere. It seems to me, uh, and, and shipping is part of this. I, I think part of the shipping thesis, and I'm not like deep in it. So do your own work. Don't listen to a thing I say. I say that enough, but I mean it every time I say it. Um, is that like, they're not replacing the boats, I think because of some environmental issues. So you've got like, there's, there's, a bunch of issues, but I, I think that's a big part of like why it may continue for a long time. Um, if those management teams actually distribute capital to shareholders and don't waste it, 
that those could be really interesting bets and nobody's interested. Like if you were to ask me how, what's the maximum pain trade in the market, cyclicals absolutely rip for like five years and the sexy stuff stays flat. Like that's how you incur the most pain. And I always kind of fantasize about the most pain because I'm sick. In your portfolio. <laughs> yeah. Well, I live that. I don't also, have to fantasize. Yeah. Uh, have you ever looked at, at Barry's portfolio? Not in a while. Well, one thing that really stands out to me is everything he does, he does, or not everything, but there's, there's a, a lot of his capital seems to be in options, calls or puts. Why do you think he runs it that way? I don't know, dude. That dude's a genius. I don't deserve to opine on how he runs his stuff. Well, I think um, a lot of times in those, you can sort of make the argument that like you're going to be right within a year or two or you're probably not going to be right. So if that's true, then why not try to get a little gearing on it if you can? And then just position size. I don't know. I mean, I, I could sort of see the logic behind that. I mean, I was sort of talking about a little bit before about having a portfolio filled with calls. Um, I guess you, I guess you just get as long as you've got a variety of different strikes uh, over a period of time, you're probably reducing some of that, and you keep on rolling it right. You're probably reducing some of that risk that you're a donut on the whole portfolio. Yeah, I don't know. I really don't, but. Uh... Short, short, sexy, and long cyclical seems to be his trade, and it's an interesting one. I mean, you can't hang a guy for that. I, I, I know somebody else who runs their portfolio that way. <laughs> In a very systematic way. Yeah. All right, dudes, uh, hit us with the questions. Hit us with the cues. Uh, we'll uh, take a shot at it. Dudes only? Yeah, ladies, is, please. Is ladies dudes first. Ladies first. I call my daughter dude. Oh, okay. She calls me yeah. dude too. I don't know if that's good for everybody, but that's, what, think that's it is. what we're doing. That's what we're doing at the moment. You're Australian. You can get away with that. She's yeah, not. Just... It's fair. Uh, if you own a security, why not sell a leap on it for a price you would happily exit at? Eh, I don't like that. I don't like truncating wins. It yeah, doesn't make sense right. to me. If you want to sell it, though, this is instead of selling it, I guess. Or a price you'd be happy to exit at. I don't mind if a security gets to like a valuation that I don't really understand. I'm okay selling leaps higher than that. But I've seen too many securities get to prices that I don't understand to start truncating wins. I mean, that's, that's like fundamentally the answer. And I think even Charlie Munger would agree with me. Kind of depends on that whole you know, right tail and what do you think you're owning? And do you think that the good thing can be even better than you could have imagined? Um, and you're, you're chopping that all off then, which is sort of goes against all the Besson binder study. I mean, it's like, Hey, I'm going to lock in this, uh, tie and make sure I don't win. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Uh, well, we'll play playing for the tie here. Graham used to say 50% or two years. Um, which I think is bad advice because you get those winners and the winners are what pays for the whole portfolio. If you hold for long enough, particularly one of the things I like about Graham. Uh, Fairness to Graham, different time periods where he was just shooting fish in a barrel with like the base rate was really high on success for each one relative to probably today. So I think a little bit of a probably deserve, he deserves a little explanation there. But I think that, Buffett has taken his idea about entry and then ignored his idea about exit. And that's probably part of the reason why he's done so well, which is one of, one of, the, um, one of the things that I like about mm -hmm. David Gardner's approach, even though, because I think that Gardner's maybe, I, I don't really know what he's talking about when he's saying looking at high prices. I, I don't know if that's a... That's just like a multiple, but he's trying to be the first guy to buy it and the last guy to sell it. So he's talking about high multiples on small stuff and just I, let I, it run. I, I get the multiple idea. I just don't know what yeah. what that means in practical sense. Like, does it mean he he won't buy anything with less than a three percent free cash value? I mean, I got no idea. Like, it, it, yeah, I don't know. I don't know. 
And, and it, I don't it, sub. If, Somebody should give me a sub. You give me a sub to the Molly Fool, I'll sell it harder than I already have. But if that's his pit, like if that's the pitch, and he said, well, that's, that's not that expensive. But then the, the part that I'm interested in is not so much how he gets into them, because that's, you can probably follow someone like uh, Phil Fisher and get that, you know, I think that that's, he's a, he's a Fisher guy, right? Yeah, I think that's probably right. And then the, the interesting wrinkle is never selling. And I think that I've been looking at this is the sort of little research project I've been doing. I've been looking at that. You get this uh, really interesting phenomenon in your portfolio where you do catch these things that get red hot and go on these monster runs. And I don't know how predictive it is. It's probably just, I don't know if it's more likely to happen from this pool that you're selecting or it's just that's, you know, if you randomly select a whole lot of stocks, you're going to get some monster winners in there. But if you hold yeah. these things, like to get 10, 20, 30, 40, 50, 60 plus times on your money, your holding period has to be like, decades you have to be thinking in those kind of terms and so if david gardner has a way of constructing a portfolio that allows him to hold stuff for decades then that's probably a winning portfolio yeah i think i think that's right I, gu- I guess the other thing is um i'm pretty sure david Barr told me that he thinks about it in the way of um and sorry if it's not him but i'm pretty confident uh like there's a difference between re-raters and compounders right so like compounders uh, things you think the business can continue to, to generate good returns on capital and grow, those you probably don't want to sell leaps on. If you're playing a re- or, or like options on, that's me speaking, not him speaking. This is to uh, truncate your, yeah, this is to get out of them, to get out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But he then has like things that he plays as a re-rating. And I would say a re-rating is probably where I'd be more comfortable selling an option, yeah. right? Because you don't really have like this long right tail that you think you're truncating. Yeah, that makes sense. Uh, I saw a tweet today about China that I, I'm going to get the names wrong, but Amazon has the same market cap as like JD, Baidu, Tencent, and Alibaba. But that collective four or whatever it is generates um, materially more free cash flow than Amazon does. Yeah. The only question that people need to answer is, do I want to take the VIE risk? If your answer is yes, buy the shit out of all of them, I think. Not investment advice. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> also, don't listen to a word I say, but yeah, like I think they're all, I, I don't see how anyone can look at what's gone on with those stocks, study those businesses. And if you have confidence in the Chinese government, not like taking away your derivative claim on ownership, I don't see how you don't buy them. Whether or not you want to have that confidence is fine. I see plenty of snark in the debates on, oh, well, you're yeah. just going to partner with communists like okay then don't do it i don't care but like it's not really a valuation discussion that's that's a binary i'm going to or i'm not going to yeah that's fair so how much uh do you uh, do you allocate to china i don't have any allocate hail mary all in no i'm dicking around with these melting ice cubes curate (laughs) according to greg who doesn't know anything about debt but that's fine um, yeah, I'm, uh, the, the valuation is, is, is tempting, but you have to kind of get comfortable with that, that VI risk. And I don't know if there's any way that you really can, you just kind of, you, I think you got to, you got to view it as an unknowable problem and then think about the returns are going to be very good if you're right. And they're going to be disastrous if you're wrong. So that's how you size it. Some people I've heard are like favoring the Hong Kong shares to the VIE structure. I mean, I guess that makes sense, but like to me, I don't I, I don't know that the game theory of like China saying these VIEs are not okay. Like that I, I don't know, man. I just don't know that I buy that they're gonna do that. Um I, I just it seems hard, it's far fetched. That but they would maybe, that they would end them all, that they would just crush it all. Yeah, well, they're not legal, right? They've never been approved, but they've also not been crushed. And I guess if there was some regulation, might this is like really just hearsay. Spitballing. Yeah, there was some regulation uh, introduced to regulate the VIEs, but that's probably a positive, right? Because that's not to shut down the VIEs. That's, that's like more of an acknowledgement of the structure is, to, is here to stay. So I don't know. And uh, as JT has pointed out to me uh, last week, there's more, um, you know, whether the exact the exact technical 
regulatory environment, how it all gets achieved. That's that's one thing. But the, the other idea is that like, do they really want to just cut off access to international capital? Yeah, know, it's crazy. For, China has done that before. Like China's gone insular for 500 years, but I don't know that necessarily worked out that well. So it's entirely possible that um, they learn from that experience and don't want to go insular and want to keep access to international equity markets. Yeah, well, dude, you're, you're talking about uh, this is a global scale game right now, right? Like these big companies are playing for global scale. China's just going to cut off international capital so that the West can win a global scale game. Like that doesn't make sense. And crush your sort of like national hero companies. Yeah. And like just seed the world to the West, like what are the East or whatever. Yeah. The West, whatever. Like it, it doesn't make sense. Like I just don't understand other than fear, why people think they would do it. Given that, that that's an interesting point that like that they're the international champion type companies. Does that change the calculation? Is that one of the reasons why we haven't seen antitrust um, being, although Google is going to go through that process, but it hasn't sort of seemed to have been enforced. I think it's a huge reason. In the States, yeah. Yeah, because like who can invest more in the stuff that we're going to need to defend them ourselves than like Google and Facebook? Like we need them defend, like investing in AI. The government's not going to do it. And there's no company big enough to do it outside of those guys. So it's some fucking political pony show that never turns into anything. Sorry, I'm cursing a lot today. There must be well, the, something in my heart. I like the, it. uh, it's your it's your vagal nerve. <laughs> yeah, it's I, the. Sorry, I don't know. I don't have anything like I'm not an expert. It's just that's how I see it. But some of these things, I don't know if anybody is an expert. I think that, that nobody really knows what's going to happen. You just kind of you got to you got to have the, the you got to have both possibilities. You got to consider both possibilities and what happens if both possi- either one happens. But I think that the I, I I'm sort of coming around to the view that it's hard for China to destroy these companies outright. And you why would they a, want to? Like, I, yeah. think what Charlie, I think what Charlie would say is if you look at the history of China, they think long. If you think long right now, why would you crush your greatest technology companies and truncate the, the access to capital from the rest of the world? Like, why now do you pull that card? So if your investment you horizon like you're in is 10 to 20... What? You feel like you're in the ascendancy? Yeah, but they don't even have sufficient capital to back all of the ca- the companies that they need to back within the country, according to somebody that I talked to. So like they need access to, to outside capital and they're just going to like screw over everyone outside. I, I just, I don't know. That would be very um, uncharacteristic of my understanding of how they think. It's one of the more interesting questions out there at the moment. I think I, I don't have an answer for it either, but I just... It's worth watching. It's just it's it's interesting because they are going to be incredible businesses. Well, they are incredible businesses. I think they're probably going to be incredible returns too. It's just you do have that sort of risk, that metaphysical risk hanging over your head that something might happen there. Yeah, I don't know, man. It just feels like a lot of people are overweighting it because of where they were born. Like I really think there's a lot of home country bias in these conversations. For yeah, sure, people are mad too about, uh, you know coronavirus and it's just i think there's a, a fair amount of just got sort demonetized. Of, oh, Damn it. Shit. at least thomas sent us the tip shout out to you man yeah he probably gets a refund now. Uh, <laughs> yeah. at least there's i mean i i think that there's a lot of sort of like anger that wants to find an outlet somewhere and a scapegoat and like i think china is a pretty uh pretty ripe target for a lot of us if you wanted to drum up some hate and get your uh, rally your political base. Yeah, it feels like Russia back in the day, you know. It's and I guess even like with the recent election, but I'm thinking like Cold War Russia. Yeah, like it just feels like we need some sort of an enemy in our minds to rally the tribe, and China's going to be that. Wolverines. Like, yeah, I just don't know that I buy it. I think it was funniest when it was North Korea. Yeah, like well, all all of the all of the movies were like anti North Korea, like North Korea is going to do anything. It's because, like, hey, we got to To be fair, you don't want a missile to hit your ground, but I don't ocean. disagree with you. Into the ocean, <laughs> and they didn't all fire. I agree; they had career. problems. 
the execution <laughs> left a little to be wanting. If I you're just think it was funny. That it, was, it was like, we got to make this movie and there's a chance that we can sell it in China. So we can't make China the bad guy. We got to make North Korea the bad guy. Yeah. I mean, you know, censorship, like it, it, it ties into a lot of political thought and I understand why people have strong emotions with politics, but I think you don't get paid in this game for intertwining pol- politics and money. No, don't let that come into your portfolio. That's that'll cabbage up your thinking. And on that note, that's it, fellas. This was fun. Peace. Bye everyone.